Good morning, everyone. This is Jason Masters from Athene, and I welcome you to our When Inflation Surges webinar with Stephen King. Before we get started, a few quick housekeeping items to share. Uh, first, you will notice that you are in listen-only mode, which means that your microphones are muted for sound quality. We will facilitate a short Q&A following today's presentation, so please submit your questions uh, through the, the uh, system, and we will get to as many as we can uh, during that Q&A segment. Lastly, today's webinar will be recorded. Thanks again for joining, and I will now hand it over to Holly Robertson, Vice President of Quantitative Investment Solutions with HSBC Bank USA. Thank you, Jason, um, and thanks everyone. Um, thank you all for having us on the call today, um, and, and thank you very much, as always, for your continued partnership. We've, uh, we've loved the partnership we've had with you all over the last couple of years, and we're um, excited to continue working with you over the over the rest of this year and beyond. Um, so as Jason said, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Holly Robertson. I'm part of the Quantitative Investment Solutions team here at HSBC. Um, and with me on the call today, I'm lucky enough to have, again, as Jason said, uh, have Stephen King, our senior economic advisor here at HSBC, who's going to speak to what he sees happening in the markets today, specifically focusing on inflation. So before I wrap this up, this quick intro up, uh, I wanted to make sure you're all aware we are available to you, happy to do further calls specific to the index um, and talk through more transactional details, more talking points on how, me, how you may be able to position um, with advisors. I'm, I'm available to you whenever you need, so please don't hesitate to reach out. But for right now, I would like to hand over to Stephen. He's, um, as always, very much in demand, but particularly right now with everything going on in the market. So I'd like to make sure you get the most from his time today. Um, and as I said, I'm always available should you have any questions or follow-ups. So I'll hand over to Stephen King now. Well, thank you very much, Holly. And uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's uh, a great time to be an economist. I know this because things are so awful that economists are in demand. Uh, and it happens every so often. And uh, this is one of the occasions when people actually do want to listen to economists, which tells me that things aren't 100% uh, great. Um, and I thought I would say a few words about um, inflation, um, in part because I think the debate narrative certainly in recent weeks, has shifted a little bit away from inflation towards uh, recession or the avoidance of recession. And also because, I guess, the last inflation print in the U.S. Uh, was a relatively favorable one. It was a, a little lower than feared um, and I think has you know, helped raise expectations that perhaps the worst of the inflation is over, that it'll come back down again. And as a consequence, the Federal Reserve won't have to raise interest rates quite so far. And certainly I think the rally that we've seen in stock markets over the last few weeks is consistent with this slightly higher level of optimism than had been the case previously. Um, what I want to argue though is that we are confronting something at the moment which is really very different from anything we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years. The last time we had inflation um, at these kinds of rates was at the beginning of the 1980s. Um, and uh, Actually, if you go back further, in some countries, this is the highest that they have seen in the entire post-war period. Uh, Germany, for example, which admittedly was West Germany for a big chunk of the post-war period, uh, now has an inflation rate, uh, which is the highest it's been since the formation of the Federal Republic um, at the end of the 1940s. So uh, these are strange times indeed. Um, and the reason for the strangeness um, is, is not quite, I think, what 
conventional thinking has suggested, the standard explanation for why inflation is so high um, is a mixture of things, really, but it's all really associated with the idea of external shocks that no one could easily have predicted. So the first of those external shocks, of course, is Putin's invasion of Ukraine um, and the impact it's had on global energy prices and also on food prices. Uh, the second um, external shock is the continuation of uh, Chinese lockdowns in particular, uh, which has damaged global supply chains and has meant that at least uh, currently uh, things are not working as smoothly in product markets as might otherwise have been the case. So you have these sort of Russian and Chinese stories that um, have percolated through uh, and which I think in terms of commentary are seem to be the most obvious explanation for why um, inflation is so high at the moment. It's a case of a series of sort of moments of bad luck, partly associated with the pandemic and how the Chinese have managed it, and partly of Putin's desire to, to rebuild a greater Russia. And the problem with all this is that while it's true, it doesn't really account. And one reason why it doesn't account for it is that inflation uh, was rising long before uh, Putin invaded uh, Ukraine and um, long before China had its particular COVID difficulties uh, during the course of this year. And bear in mind that last year uh, China had reopened when everyone else was still shut down. Um, and uh, so that wasn't a story that came through last year. But what is intriguing is that it was last year, not this year, uh, when inflation started to move ahead. And, and just to stress the point, um, it wasn't a an inflation story that was moving ahead solely in the US, as some people argue, uh, inflation prices, but also in the UK. We started to see the beginnings of a, in the early stages of 2021. Bye. Um, I'd also note that, note, particularly in the US, um, the extent to which inflation has picked up um, is not confined to the sort of suspects that were mentioned last year. Last year, it was about energy prices, maybe some food prices, at second-hand car prices, but a lot of people said we'd exclude those things and focus on everything else, uh, you'll discover that actually inflation isn't quite so bad after all. Uh, that stopped being true, I would suggest, quite late last year when it was pretty clear that by that stage, inflation was no longer confined to those very narrow areas. It was beginning to spread through to a whole range of different sub-indices within the consumer price index. Um, so by that stage, you kind of knew that in terms of goods and services prices, uh, there was a broader problem uh, than just the kind of pandemic-specific issues that had cropped up um, earlier last year. Um, I'd also note that when it comes to inflationary pressures, um, whereas they were seen to be, first of all, in goods markets alone, uh, they have become much more obvious both in goods markets and services markets. And more recently, they've also become obvious in labor markets. Um, and there's a good reason for this, which is that labor markets on both sides of the Atlantic um, are now very, very tight. Um, unemployment in the US is at historic lows or close to historic lows. Um, the uh, UK has very low unemployment and also very high vacancy numbers. They fell a little bit yesterday or this morning, in fact, they're still very high um, across Europe. Uh, labor markets appear to be relatively tight. And so for all those reasons, one might say that this is no longer an inflation problem confined to goods or confined to goods and services. It's a story that finds its way through to people 
um, as well. Now, people have argued that it is not the same as the 1970s, and one of the reasons that people cite is that back in the 1970s, certainly in, in some countries, native my own, the UK, um, there was tremendous um, union pressure for big increases in wages, and unions were curtailed in terms of their power in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher. Laws were changed, much more difficult now to get the same kind of union pressure as we saw in the 1970s. I think that is true, although it might be less true in parts of the public sector um, in the UK in particular. Uh, but what is different this time around is that labour markets are actually very tight. And what I mean by that is that because unemployment is so low and because vacancies in many countries are so high, um, it is um, relatively easy uh, to hop from one job to another. Um, and companies are being forced in one sense uh, to pay up for the privilege of hiring workers from elsewhere. Uh, so this is what we might describe as a classic sort of demand pull labor market story, not so much to do with the negotiation of big wage settlements, but rather the simple ability of individuals to, to move jobs more easily than they have been able to do for many a year, possibly even many a decade. And in the process of moving jobs, being able to demand a premium, uh, that of course means in some cases that they're able to keep up to a certain degree uh, with the higher inflation rates that we're seeing today. And frankly, no central bank really wants to see that, uh, not because they don't like workers, but rather because they worry about the possibility that you may be generating a wage price spiral. Now, the other thing I would note, and this goes back to this idea of, of lessons from hundreds of years of, of economic data, is that um, although there's a big debate between monetarists and non-monetarists about the role of money and how important it is or not, as the case may be, um, it is quite difficult to find sustained periods of relatively high inflation without there being any role for money whatsoever. Uh, and here, I think there has been a role for money uh, over the last two or three years. I stress I'm not really a monetarist in the formal sense, but I do think that they have some useful points to make here. And most obviously, um, the US saw a tremendous expansion of money supply in, in 2021 and, and 2020. Um, and I think we are still seeing the consequences of that feeding through now, even as current money supply growth numbers um, have fallen away quite significantly. And I want to explain why. Um, well, first of all, policymakers in 2020 were terrified about another Great Depression when lockdowns first happened. You had a collapse in GDP uh, on either side of the Atlantic, uh, which was... Um, as big, really, as we had seen during certainly unprecedented in the post of policymakers and frankly to everybody else. Um, and there were two policies adopted to try and deal with this. The first one on fiscal policy was to say that the governments have to basically take on the risk that would normally be associated with households or with companies um, in the hope that by taking on that risk, the households and companies uh, wouldn't go bust, in particular, the companies wouldn't go bust. Um, so the idea was to put companies on life support during the lockdowns in the hope that they would survive and come out of the other side still uh, being going concerns. And to be fair, I would suggest that that policy was pretty successful uh, in the US, in the UK, um, in parts of Europe. Um, now, it's one thing to sort of keep companies alive and put them on life support. It's another thing uh, to add to that by offering tremendous amounts of monetary stimulus which is what central banks did um, in terms of cutting interest rates, offering 
QE of one kind or another. Um, and thinking that somehow this was the right thing to do, even though lockdowns, of course, almost by definition meant that the supply performance of the economy uh, would be weaker than it otherwise would have been. And in fact, what then happened was that as lockdowns came to an end, there was a significant recovery in demand, uh, but actually supply couldn't recover in quite the same way. It couldn't recover partly because China itself was still locked down, so one of the most important suppliers to the rest of the world wasn't really firing on all cylinders. Um, and um, uh, that basically meant that there was damage from that perspective. But secondly, there was damage because having been through months and months of lockdown, the price signals that we rely upon to allocate resources just hadn't been there. Uh, so when lockdowns came to an end, a whole series of markets, you know, tiny microscopic markets, were all out of kilter. They weren't aligned properly. Uh, there'd been a breakdown in information flows. Uh, the consequence of that was lower levels of activity than would otherwise have been the case. The bottom line is that coming out of lockdown, uh, there was always pent-up demand that had been associated with loose monetary conditions that at that point had fed itself into, for example, much more elevated equity markets. And all that told you was that people could convert their, their financial gains in equities into extra spending, which they did. Uh, but as they spent more, because the supply side performance of economies was unable to respond, you had extra demand, uh, no significant extra supply. And when you have those kinds of conditions put together, it is almost inevitable that inflation itself uh, will tend to rise which is exactly what we've seen over the course of the last year or two. Now, as for the future, um, central banks are saying that they have tightened monetary policy to a certain degree, which of course they have. Uh, the Federal Reserve has certainly offered some fairly hawkish comments through the course of this year, moved away from the sort of transitory language it had used earlier on. Uh, we're also seeing similar movements beginning to come through uh, from the European Central Bank, and perhaps also from the Bank of England, although they haven't moved as much as the Federal Reserve has done so far, and probably won't move as much in the future either, uh, partly because Europe is is harder hit from the sort of gas shock uh, that is true um, in, in the US. Um, but here I have a slight problem, which is that I, I fear that what central bankers are hoping to achieve, and what they might actually achieve, um, are two different things. Uh, and this comes back to uh, a couple of things, really. The first is that central bankers themselves like to argue that they still have full credibility, that we, the public, believe in what they say, believe in what they intend to achieve, and believe that they have um, the, the sort of ammunition and the weapons to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, and that works well when inflation itself is well-behaved. So long as inflation has been well-behaved, we are likely to continue to believe it will be well-behaved in the future. Uh, but we do know from uh, history, certainly back in the 1960s, uh, that if inflation begins to stop being well-behaved, if it starts to rise steadily in an unexpected fashion and doesn't reverse at any point, um, then under those circumstances, there's a chance that we'll stop trusting the central bank, we'll stop having quite so much faith in it, and we'll begin to wonder whether the central bank really is in control of the inflationary process. Uh, at that point, expectations become de-anchored horrible word to use really, but uh, that's a sort of technical word that people tend to use. Um, and um, suddenly the central bank is, is not quite as secure in its credibility as might have been the case um, previously. The second issue, which I've not seen much discussion about, but which I think is very, very important, 
um, is that I think there's a confusion between apples and pears, or put in economic terms, there's a confusion between the real economy and what I call the nominal economy. So the real economy is, is the volume of economic activity and what it does. The nominal economy is effectively the value of economic activity uh, reflected in, in changes in the price level. So um, it's a reflection in part of what's happening with inflation. So if I offer you two um, scenarios, um, I think this helps to explain what I mean in terms of the differences between the two. So my first scenario, you have inflation, say, at 2%, and you have wages growing at zero. We can all agree that in those circumstances, real wages are contracting 2% a year. So inflation is eating away at real spending power, um, and so people are worse off. Then we can think of another world uh, whereby inflation is at, say, 10%, uh, and wages are rising at 8%. Well, in that other world, the impact on real wages is identical to the first world, uh, because if you have inflation at 10 and wages growing at 8, again, real wages are falling 2% a year. However, they are real differences. They're not nominal differences. Uh, if you start thinking about this in nominal terms, you get a rather different result, which is that let's imagine that um, in the, the first of my two worlds, interest rates are at, say, 1%. And let's imagine in the second of these two worlds, interest rates are at, I don't know, 3%. So they've gone up 2%. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, interest rates have risen. That represents a tightening of monetary policy. But if you're having a wage increase of 8%, even if inflation is at 10, a wage increase of 8% when nominal rates are only at 3% still means that you're incentivized to borrow because the more you borrow, the more of that borrowing is eroded through inflation. Um, and because interest rates are still so low, uh, you are you know, easily able to, to cope with repaying uh, the debt service costs on that borrowing. In other words, inflation is very much the borrower's friend. It always has been, it always will be. Uh, and so anyone who can actually borrow would continue to do so, which in turn means that there's a risk that monetary conditions remain relatively uh, you know, soft uh, relatively supportive and actually under those circumstances there's a risk that the nominal economy continues to expand at an uncomfortably rapid rate now what does that mean in plain english um it means simply that you could have a situation where the real economy slows so you know there are fears of recession coming through at the moment uh so let's imagine you have the real economy going from two percent growth down to zero uh, but equally uh, you could find the nominal economy uh, this is adding uh, growth and inflation together. It could still be trundling along at you know, seven, eight, nine percent. And in, under those circumstances, if interest rates are only at three, uh, the risk is that your inflation problem uh, becomes persistent. It does not go away because you've done nothing really to stop inflation in its tracks. And frankly, that's kind of what I fear um, is the risk over the next year or two. Um, and I think that um, the consensus, I, I believe, is, is possibly rather complacent. The consensus says uh, a modest series of further rate increases, which will still leave them historically at very low levels, will be good enough uh, to get inflation back down. Um, and the argument that's being used here is to say, well, yeah, if energy prices are rising so much and food prices are rising so much, then people's real wages are falling 
that's going to be enough to slow the economy down. Well, it is enough to slow the real economy down. It may not be enough to get inflation under control. So um, the way I put this is that the consensus basically says very small changes in interest rates have very big effects on inflation. They will bring inflation back down. And by the end of 2023 into 2024, inflation will be behaving itself as it has been over the last 30 or 40 years. This, I think, is a very optimistic scenario. It's effectively saying uh, small changes in monetary policy have very, very big impacts um, on inflationary expectations and inflation performance. Um, relative to that complacent view, in my view, there are, there are two risks. Um, the first risk um, is that um, the inflation forecasts are correct, but only because there is a much bigger tightening of monetary policy between now and the beginning of next year. Um, in other words, that um, central banks say it is absolutely vital to get control of inflation. We've got it wrong up until now. We're now going to have to work much harder to do that. And that would mean a much deeper recession than people are currently forecasting. The other option, which my political antennae tell me is perhaps a, a little more plausible um, at the moment, is that because politicians in particular are worried understandably about uh, the outlook for economic growth. Uh, they will persuade themselves that the inflation we've got currently is entirely temporary. It will disappear of its own accord, and they would rather see a focus on supporting economic growth, i.e. the key thing is to avoid recession at all costs. The problem with that is that if you haven't dealt with inflation in the meantime, your avoidance of recession will just ratchet up inflation to a new permanently higher rate. Um, and in those circumstances, we have a bigger risk of going back to the sort of conditions we saw in the 1970s, where interest rates went up, they came back down again, uh, perhaps not as far as they'd gone up, but as they came back down, it was pretty clear that inflation wasn't under control after all, and they went back up again. And uh, you had this kind of ratchet effect of higher policy rates and never returning to the kinds of conditions uh, that had been prevailing in the 1950s and early 1960s. And it wasn't really until Paul Volcker came along and Reagan was elected in 1980 that you begin to see a, a real wholesale change in a kind of mixture of monetary policy and, and, and political emphasis in the US. And the same can also be made for the claim for the UK um, with the arrival of Margaret Thatcher in 1979, who basically said, we just can't go on with this idea of you know, relatively high inflation and a lack of economic growth and constant uncertainty. And the one thing I'd emphasize here, um, and I think this is important, is that it is very easy to become focused entirely on the risk of recession and want to avoid that. It's understandable, it's an obvious instinct that is important. Uh, but at the same time, if the cost of avoiding a recession is a ratchet up in inflation, that in itself becomes problematic. And the reason why it's problematic is, is that inflation, and this is true of hundreds and hundreds of years of data, inflation is a profoundly undemocratic a mechanism to redistribute income and wealth in ways that create winners and losers in society in a way that is very, very unfair. Um, to put it simply, if you happen to have any kind of power in the labor market, whether you're unionized or you're a, an oligopoly that can determine what your workers will be paid, uh, you can protect yourself against inflation. 
But if you're a smaller company or you're a non-unionized worker, uh, you are often much more exposed. But outside the labor market, uh, if you're a pensioner, uh, particularly a poor pensioner who relies primarily on cash savings and a cash income, you are brutally exposed um, to the impact of inflation. Same is also true often for those people who are on social benefits. Um, and it's also true in terms of people, uh, basically creditors versus debtors. Um, I mentioned before that if interest rates remain relatively low and inflation is high, then of course that's a great thing for debtors. It's also incredibly destructive for uh, people with, again, cash savings. Um, and so what you end up with is a redistribution of income, a redistribution of wealth, uh, a growing sense of them and us. And moreover, a sense that the market isn't working in a way that's really particularly fair because um, those people who are losing out are really losing out through no fault of their own. And it doesn't matter what effort they make to try to improve their living standards. Each time they make the effort, they are getting left behind. And I think that slow, destructive creep of inflation is something that means that there isn't necessarily a, a political reaction to it straight away because everyone hopes it just goes away of its own accord. But the longer it persists for, uh, the bigger it becomes as a lasting political issue, which is how you ended up, I think, with the huge political changes that we saw at the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s. It wasn't a party political change. It was almost as if people were saying, we've had enough of this cancerous process of inflation. It's time to get rid of it once and for all. And that is what happened at that point. Uh, but the 70s also demonstrate that it is very, very easy uh, for governments to live with inflation in the hope that somehow it's just a series of accidental external shocks and it'll be all right in the night. It normally is not all right in the night. Um, and that's why I think inflation is such a worrying, worrying thing. Now, I should say, uh, just to conclude, that um, in terms of our own um, forecasts, we, we, you know, HSBC's forecasts, we have you know, interest rates rising uh, a little bit in uh, the US, um, the UK, um, and in the Eurozone, the US by more than the other two. Uh, but I would say that in each of these cases, I, I, I fear that um, we're being a bit too timid relative to what might eventually be required. Um, so what I'm getting at here, I think, is that the inflation difficulty is embedded to a greater degree and will require harder work um, to deal with it. So on that cheerful note and hand back uh, to Jason Masters, who I think is going to offer some questions and possibly take some uh, questions from all of you who have been listening uh, over the last few minutes. So over yeah. to you, Jason. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, great information there. A lot of, uh, again, just a quick reminder, if you have any questions, feel free to hear over the next. Uh, um, can the U.S. Late last year, um, and he used um, a comparison with King Canute. Uh, for those of you who don't know King Canute, um, he was a king in England before the, before the Norman Conquest. This is going back a long way. And he was brought uh, to a beach. Uh, because uh, his advisors wanted him to prove that he really was all-powerful and had, I suppose, um, the power of a deity, really. And the idea was he was going to command the tides not to come in, um, that uh, this was how powerful he was. And surprise, surprise, his point was that it may be the same to come, but whatever, is, whatever will be achieved. 
or everyone in an individual country uh, listens to what the central bank says um, and their own inflationary expectations immediately adjust to the central bank's guidance, then the chance of seeing much in the way of inflation probably quite low. Uh, because what's the point of demanding a, a big pay increase if you know that inflation is going to average over the medium term 2% a year? In other words, the central bank is fully credible uh, and is able to command the inflationary waves and tides in the same way that King Canute was supposed to be able to do. Then in those circumstances, um, you can have relatively cost-free ways of controlling inflation. Now, to be fair, over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, that's been a reasonable description of what's happened uh, for a variety of different reasons. Inflation has been low, partly associated with the so-called great moderation uh, linked to globalization, you know, stronger links between different countries, more efficient supply chains, partly linked to the independence of central banks themselves, uh, partly, I think, demographically linked to the fact that aging populations dislike inflation for all sorts of fairly obvious reasons. Uh, but unfortunately, um, this model sort of assumes that inflation is, is only controlled by central banks. And, and we know, uh, particularly from the last 18 months or so, that's not entirely true. Um, first of all, central banks can be thrown off course by shocks like the pandemic. And secondly, you can have um, energy price shocks that have nothing to do with them, but it leaves them with a choice as to whether they accommodate that shock monetarily or whether they try to mop up the inflationary risks associated with it. Um, and I would suggest that central banks have perhaps unintentionally accommodated more of it than they intended. In other words, I, I think that the risk of a recession now uh, would be lower had central banks acted earlier to tighten monetary policy. Um, if they had uh, raised rates, let's say, um, early, middle 2021, when lockdowns came to an end and said, well, we recognize that there's a lot of demand beginning to come through. If they raised rates then, then the chances of inflation becoming sort of built into the system would be lower. Uh, but now, um, I think the combination of their own mistakes and also the uh, subsequent energy price shocks uh, makes it much more difficult to to guarantee the avoidance of recession. And indeed, Bank of England, for one, is now forecasting an outright recession starting at the end of this year, through the course of next year, and into the beginning of 2024. So this is pretty unusual because central banks themselves are now forecasting the sorts of things that they would have argued was were unimaginable. Um, a few years back. So I, I think we've, we've sort of got to the point now whereby um, a recession of some kind is, is now unfortunately quite likely. Thanks, Stephen. Um, second question, um, are financial markets uh, too relaxed about the inflation threat at this point? Well, I, I think that they, and they, 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 struggled to find the right model basically over the last uh, year or two. If we go back to the, the, the sort of middle phase of the pandemic, of course, equity markets doing incredibly well. And that's because frankly, there was an awful lot of money being um, effectively printed, uh, which could not be spent on goods and services because of lockdown. So it found its way into financial assets of one kind, and it was equity markets or antiquarian books or fine art or whatever it was. Uh, they all did very, very well. Uh, then we have a very choppy phrase, uh, phase rather, 
um, at the beginning of this year uh, when suddenly inflation is a problem and people are worried about the consequences of dealing with it and people are becoming much more nervous about where monetary policy is heading. And now we've gone through another phase where, particularly in the US, and there's a sense, well, maybe the Federal Reserve isn't going to raise rates quite as much as we feared. Maybe inflation is coming back under control. Um, and if it is, then we can avoid recession. Um, the tricky thing with this is that I, I think financial markets, investors are understandably and rightly uh, much more uncertain than they would have been a few years back. And the reason for the uncertainty is precisely that we have this kind of growth inflation trade-off, which has deteriorated hugely compared to what we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. So the rules of the game have changed. And, and we're all in the middle of trying to rebuild those rules or reconstruct those rules and try to understand an economy that appears to be behaving differently from the past. Um, and bits of data will tend to encourage you to head in one direction or another. But none of these bits of data on their own is a guarantee of where we'll actually end up in a year or two years' time. Um, again, if you look at, say, the 19, 1970s, there were occasions when equity markets did very, very well. Uh, equally, there were occasions when they were a complete disaster. So you know, the volatility of markets went up, not just in terms of daily volatility, but volatility from quarter to quarter or from year to year. Uh, and it's that bumpiness that makes life much more awkward. Um, and I suppose in one sense also gives you much more of a trader's market rather than a market where you buy and hold and forget about it and discover that you're much richer in 10 years' time. Thank you. Um, next question. What do you think can be done about Europe's energy crisis? So this starts off a long time ago. Um, and it starts off, I suppose, with the end of the Cold War, the reintegration of uh, Central and Eastern European countries into the EU. Um, and um, Russia's focus on energy production to meet um, the needs of this greater Europe, um, which is associated with the various gas pipelines that have been constructed in the intervening period. Um, and, and through this period, there was a sense that Russia was not just Europe's, but you know, the G7's friend, of course, you know, 10 years ago, uh, Russia was part of the G8. It was part of the, the sort of big friendly group of, of major industrial nations that were one big happy family, um, supposedly. Um, and, and so it seemed reasonable at that stage, I suppose, for people to say, well, okay, if, if we produce industrial goods and services and Russia produces gas, then the theories of comparative advantage would suggest that uh, Russia should continue with its gas production, we'll buy the gas from them, uh, and we'll guarantee that we'll buy it because we're going to construct all these gas pipelines. Um, and in return, we will trade with Russia in ways that hadn't been possible um, during the Cold War, um, you know, which is all fine. Um, but that assumed that Russia's view of the world and the West's view of the world were the same, and that clearly has not been the case. And this is a bit of shameless advertising, actually, but um, my last book that came out back in 2017, new edition 2018, <laughs> called Grave New World, um, which was um, subtitled The End of Globalization and the Return of History, 
um, in that book, I, I, I argued uh, that different countries, different regions had, frankly, different subjective historical narratives of where they where they've come from, uh, how they belong to each other, how they connected with others. Um, and I think there was a misunderstanding of, or a difference of view in terms of what the Russian narrative was. The West's version of the Russian narrative was Russia's now got freedom after the collapse of communism in 1981-1982, uh, and this is a good thing for Russia and indeed a good thing for the rest of the world. I think many Russians, and in particular Vladimir Putin, saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, not just as the collapse of the Soviet Union, but also the collapse of the Russian Empire. Um, and as time has gone by, he has decided that it's time to rebuild the Russian Empire. Um, so these are sort of foreign policy behaviors that we thought had, had, had died out with the end of the Cold War, uh, but which are still there. Now, it's a long-winded way of saying that uh, Europe is totally dependent on, on Russian gas for those historical reasons. It's very difficult for Europe to wean itself off uh, Russian gas. Um, it will eventually find uh, LNG alternatives um, once those um, facilities have, have, have expanded. Uh, but for the time being, um, Putin knows that uh, he can damage Europe significantly uh, by limiting the supply of gas. Um, and the bottom line is that, first of all, Europe is paying, paying much higher prices for its gas, understandably, because there's a shortage of it. Um, but uh, secondly, that uh, Putin, I think, is hoping that by you know, imposing economic pain on Europe, that will weaken the resolve against Russia with regard to Ukraine. Um, bottom line is that, like the UK, there's a very good chance that Europe will be going into recession. Uh, with the added uncertainty of what that means for the euro, uh, because it may be that some countries are better placed to, to cope with the recession than others, which in turn creates all sorts of euro departure risk that the ECB never really wants to think about, but uh, will have to think about, I think, in the next uh, year or two. Um, so, you know, sort of technical sense of this is it's a massive terms of trade shock, very negative for Europe, uh, and it means higher prices and lower activity over the next few quarters, unfortunately. Thank you. Um, would you say this is a repeat of the 1970s all over again, the, the market we're in today? Um, it's, it's different in some ways. I, um, first of all, we do have a better understanding of what causes inflation, although we may not always have chosen to, 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 to sort of uh, make use of that understanding. Um, secondly, we do have more in the way of independent central banks than was true back then. So you might arguably say that means that inflation can be more easily controlled than was the case back then. Um, and um, I think there's a greater unity, perhaps, in terms of the need to control inflation than was true back in the 1970s. And finally, there had been a, a momentous monetary event at the beginning of the 1970s, with the collapse of the Bretton Woods exchange rate system, which meant a loss of nominal anchors for lots of countries around the world uh, at roughly the same time. So the 70s was truly chaotic. Um, on the other hand, you could say that the increase in energy prices in the UK and, and Europe is now bigger than was true in 1973. Uh, so even if our institutional arrangements are better than was the case back then, the scale of the energy shock itself is huge. Um, and, and so there's a, you know, a big problem now to deal with. 
Um, and if you get it wrong, if you accommodate too much in the way of inflation um, and you're too relaxed about it, then I think there is a danger that we end up with the same kind of deterioration and output and inflation that we saw back in the 1970s. Thank you. Um, I think we'll take a couple more questions here. We're not, certainly not going to be able to get to all of them, um, but uh, feel free to reach out to our sales desk uh, for any that we do not get to. So um, second to last question here, um, kind of a two-parted one. Would you say uh, what if, if and when Ukraine, the Ukraine, Ukraine issue is resolved, uh, as well as supply chain issues, what effect do you see those having on inflation? Um, so, so on Ukraine, um, I have no idea when it's going to be resolved. Um, all I would say is that a lot of the experts who talk about it at the very beginning thought it could be over very quickly. It clearly isn't. Um, and I do think it has become a bit of a proxy war between Russia and the West for all sorts of understandable reasons. And the proxy wars can, as we know, can go on for a very, very long time indeed. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the first difficulty. But the second difficulty, I think, comes back to the fact that energy prices were increasing before Putin got involved in, in Ukraine. Um, and two things to note here. The first one is that, and I think partly because of the desire for a, a green transition, it may be that there was a period when there was an insufficiency of investment in, in things like gas for understandable long-term reasons. But it meant that um, we were left more vulnerable in the short term for any sort of supply dislocations that might come through. Um, the second issue is that, you know, part of the reason why gas demand has gone up is, is, is not so much to do with shortage of supplies from Russia. It's to do with the fact that China is going through its own green transition, um, you know, trying rapidly to shift its coal-fired power stations into gas-fired power stations. Now, you might think, well, that's not greening things, but it is, you know, gas is much greener, so to speak, than, than coal. Uh, so effectively, as, as China pushes, you know, rapidly towards shifting towards a gas future as opposed to a coal future, uh, then the global demand for gas inevitably rises. Um, so there are shortfalls for that reason as well. So I think the, the, the Ukraine situation, if resolved, absolutely will be helpful in pushing gas prices down to, to, to lower levels. Uh, but would it represent a return to how things were in 2017 or 2018? That I'm not so sure about, because I don't think the gas price is determined purely by what's been happening in Russia, Ukraine. Thanks, Stephen. All right, we'll take one more question here. Um, before we do that, I just want to thank everybody uh, on behalf of Athene. Thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to attend today's call. Um, also, thank you to uh, Holly and Stephen from HSBC uh, for presenting to the group today. So, Stephen, last question, and then I will let you wrap things up on your end. Um, we got actually got a couple similar to this. So, the 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 old definition of a recession was two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. Um, do you think there's a new definition of a recession today? Huh. Uh, I, I never liked that definition, to be honest with you. Um, and one reason for it is as follows, that let's imagine you have an economy which grows 10% in the first quarter, and then does minus 0.1% on the year as a whole. But apparently you had a recession in the middle of it. That doesn't sound plausible to me. But equally imagine another situation where you're up 0.1% in the first quarter, down 10% in the second, 
up 0.1 in the third and down 10% in the fourth. Apparently, you've avoided recession, but you're now much worse off. So it's a shorthand, but it's a, a shorthand that in one sense is a little bit misleading. Um, the, the, the reality is that the recession, I think, is associated with uh, not just what's happened with GDP, but things like persistently rising unemployment, uh, problems of corporate profits, um, cancellation of, of investment plans, collapse in demand for consumer durables, typically problems with the housing market. I mean, these are things you would associate with a recession. Uh, and it's that broader view, I would say, of recession that is in one sense a better description of what's happening rather than the sort of peculiar accounting sense of two negative quarters of GDP. That's great. Well, I, again, thank you to everybody uh, for taking time out of your day today. Uh, thank you to Stephen. Stephen, if you have any uh, concluding remarks, um, I will let you wrap things up from here, but we appreciate you uh, presenting to the audience today. Well, all I say is, is thank you very much, and perhaps it's possible that Holly might want to say a few closing remarks on behalf of HSBC. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, I'll just I'll just very quickly wrap up by repeating again. Um, you know, as I said in the beginning, always available if you have any if anyone has any specific questions on the Apex Index, um, or, or you know how you can position that with advisors. Um, I'm always available. Uh, so thank you very much for your time today.